Hi, and welcome to the Filmmaker Toolkit Podcast. My name is Chris O'Fall. I am the Deputy Editor of Film and TV Craft at IndieWire. And my guest today is director Shaka King talking about his new film, Judas and the Black Messiah, uh, which is streaming right now on HBO Max. If you haven't seen this film, you got to see this film. Uh, quick audio note, we had a um, about 20 minutes in, you're going to notice a shift in audio. We had a recording snafu. I've been trying so hard during this pandemic to keep the audio quality of this podcast as high as possible under the circumstances. Um, but for the second half, we had to rely on the Zoom audio, which has its limits, but should be fine. Um, apologize for that. And uh, anyways, Shaka was a great guest. Uh, this is a great film. I hope you enjoy this. I want to make sure I got this right here. Um, so because Kenny and Keith Lucas, they were working on a story about um, O'Neill and the FBI, and you, you got involved in that project. And then uh, Will Burson kind of independently was writing, uh, you know, for lack of a better term, a, a kind of straightforward biopic of Fred Hampton. Is, is, no, that, is that kind no, of the no, origin? No. no. So what happened was the Lucas brothers and I were working on, this is what the Lucas brothers came to me with. They said, we want to make a movie about Fred Hampton and William O'Neill that we envision as the departed inside the world of COINTELPRO. And at the time, the way that I internalized that pitch was that we were essentially making a Fred Hampton biopic Trojan horsed inside of an undercover crime drama, mm-hmm. which isn't actually what we ended up making. But that, was, that actually became a phrase that we employed to describe it because it was just succinct and you could kind of see that on your own and it was a good packaging tool though not accurate of what we were doing simultaneously off to the side will will was writing a traditional fred hampton biopic that actually focused the the antagonist in that film was jager hoover um and i think o'neill had a minimal part mitchell was different it's very very different from the character we came up with deborah was very similar to I mean, Dominique played a tremendous role in shaping that character with us, but um, he had a, you know, she was a strong presence as well. But what happened was I went to Will and I said, Will, because Will was looking for a director. And so I went to Will and I said, we have this version that we want to do. Do you want to come write this version with us? Because the Lucas brothers weren't, weren't going to scream. They were never planning on writing a screenplay. It was... Initially, I was going to be writing the screenplay alone, and I didn't want to write a screenplay alone because I hate writing screenplays alone. Uh, and so I brought Will on to write this, the version that already, you know, the we, truth of the matter is, is that once Will came on, then Will and I really did the heavy lifting in terms of breaking down an outline and really making the script what it became. But it was never combining two ideas. It was really us forming a team and then working on one uniform idea. You know, I rewatched it this morning and um, I really liked the movie the first time. But the thing that really struck me and the reason I I wanted to start here is this script is incredibly sophisticated and efficient in terms of all the stuff that is able to accomplish and is able to help you leapfrog so many of the pitfalls that could happen with a project like this. And, you know, one of the things that instantly kind of strikes me is, is Fred Hampton's story, right, is one 
I mean, the, the man's a hero. He's he's remarkable, and 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 what he went up against is amazing. But dramatically, he's probably a difficult character as a protagonist because he has no doubt, right? Like it's like exactly. this guy seems like. He was unflappable. He, like, came, it, he came here fully realized as a, as a child. His phone was tapped at 14 by the FBI. Oh, really? Wow. At 14. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. That was one of those details. I was like, I wish I could get this in here. I don't know how to get this in here because it's just such a crazy <laughs> thing to realize. Um, no, that's exactly, that's a great, I mean, we, we understood that early. It was just like, well, he, this person has no place to go some, in, in some ways. And so we actually, he does have an arc. It's a very subtle arc, um, and it's, it's very different in that since you're talking about a person who is a, is a superhero, is superhuman in a lot of ways, you have to, his arc has to be him going from superhuman to human. And so, you know, when you meet him, he's an, he's an icon. He, he presents as an icon. He gives a speech and... You know, he's critical of the people he's speaking to, and they love him. They treat him like a god, except for Deborah Johnson, who treats him like a human being. So, and that intrigues him, that interests him. And then they re-encounter one another, and there's a clear attraction. You know, not just physical, but, you know, um, what's, the, what's the phrase? Sacro, 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 sacro. I forget the name. But not gonna be able people to who are turned on by intellect. <laughs> oh, right, okay. People who are turned on by intellect, mm-hmm. you know? And, you know, they bond over this Malcolm X speech. And, they, and so, and, and you, what she does is she, she helps him get in touch with his humanity, mm-hmm. you know. And it, it's the combination of her, her entering his life and the hardships that he faces. And we, we got that from a speech that he gave where he talked about going to Menard and hearing the sound of the people and getting close to the people in a, in a way that he hadn't before, ever. Mm-hmm. And that made me think, well, okay, well, this is a person who, he fears nothing. You can't, you can't hurt him. They, the way that you hurt him is to deprive him of the ability to help others. So he's locked in prison. He finds out that his you know, place is firebombed. Maybe some of his comrades are dead. He doesn't know what's going on. And he comes out to find out that he's, this woman is pregnant with his child He's starting to, he's, he's at his most vulnerable position and he's starting to just basically become the people that he has dedicated his life to defending. And at that point, he becomes in some ways his most powerful. Um, and so that was the way that we kind of envisioned his arc. And just as he, you know, he, he becomes an almost messianic figure mm-hmm. that he's murdered. And it feels to me what you just described, it feels to me like there's something about that being inside the structure of something else, inside the structure of the um, the O'Neill story, where Daniel is not on screen all the time, where it's not this kind, it, it almost is more powerful because he's had such an impact, including on Lakeith's character, right? And you could see, you could see the impact he's having and the way he's, he's reaching people and it almost feels like that's something where that might be harder to do if he's present constantly. Right. If, if, if he's, mm-hmm. he's mm-hmm. at the anchor of every, of every scene and, and, and instead looking at him through 
this kind of dramatic irony of like the fact that we know the FBI's got someone inside his world, right? Yeah, I mean, in a lot of ways, the best way to show who Fred Hampton is is to show who he isn't mm-hmm. in contrast, you know, Bill O'Neill to him. I think that the tricky thing, like O'Neill is a great protagonist because he's conflicted. He's, he has no sense of who he is. He has a lot of questions and he has a lot of, he has a lot of directions that he can go. Um, and that's an interesting, that's, that's what makes him, you know, an interesting protagonist. But the challenge in, in this script and in this movie was that, was a couple things. One, we found out when we met Chairman Fred Hampton Jr. that William O'Neill was not Fred's bodyguard, which is what is the narrative that has been put forth historically. That, they, that he was his bodyguard and that they were good friends and that he betrayed his good friend. They weren't friends. He wasn't his bodyguard. He was a security captain. He did drug him. He was instrumental in the assassination. Um, and so he was obviously able to get close enough to him to drug him, but they weren't friends. And so, and that was very important that Chairman Fred Hampton Jr. insisted that the movie reflect that. Mm-hmm. And so we had to go back to the drawing board and think about, because it's not just only they weren't friends. Also, O'Neill never really got politicized, right? He remained apolitical essentially to, until his death. Now, did he have an emotional attachment to his comrades that he betrayed? Probably. Do I think that Fred touched his heart? I do, because look at how his life ended. Right. You know? I do think that, I do think he was racked, racked with guilt. And I do think because Fred Hampton was, his gift was touching people, that he did touch this man. You can see it in, if, when you watch the O'Neill interview, you can see that he was very affected by this person. But it was tricky to, you know, how do you, you, you have this character with a great built-in arc, but the challenge is how do you portray that arc when you can't show a guy getting politicized and you can't show a guy who's friends with this person being racked with guilt because of his close friendship with this person. So we had to do a lot of tricks, you know, it's like, it's really, and it, it, it works because as opposed to, like, I hate exposition. Yeah. So I'm, I'm just like, never going to do it. So like, w- the way I like to tell a story is with interactions, behavior, and moments. Those reveal characters. And obviously, cl- even things like clothing. You know, I think that, that can do a lot to reveal character. And just filmmaking. I like to use the filmmaking to reveal the character. And so, in O'Neill... It's not like he's racked with guilt the entire time. You're watching a guy who's just really self-serving and trying to get what he can get and manipulate both the FBI and the Black Panthers in efforts to make money and stay out of prison. And, you know, that's it. Until his life is put in danger. First, he thinks he's in danger at the hands of the Panthers. And so... He runs into the arms of his FBI agent. And then he gets getting shot at by the police. And his FBI agent has no interest in helping him get out of that pickle. Mm -hmm. And so he runs back to the arms of the Panthers. And when that happens, there's a very brief moment. I mean, his O'Neill's, and and we had to, you know, really fight for this and also do everything we could to, like, point to it, but um, but not be corny. Yeah. Where there's a moment... A brief moment after where, you know, we've established this guy as a handyman, this guy, you know, he's the handy guy. Where he sees Fred's words in action. 
this thing's this place has been burnt down. He's got to be the one to rebuild it. He thinks it's going to be a pain in the ass and a total drag. And the community shows up and they help him rebuild. And there's and he sees Fred's words in action and it's impressive. It's a small thing, but it's impressive. And then Fred gets out and probably their most tender moment of interaction in the entire film, Fred thanks O'Neill for leading the rebuild process, which from what I've heard, he did actually do, he really did do a lot to rebuild the headquarters after it was burned down. And um, that moment between those two, you really see O'Neill is really touched by this guy and has has a moral consciousness. And then he finds out that one of his characters his kid's comrades has been killed by the police, you know? And there's just a moment of vulnerability. He's in this, he's in this space. Fred's got a command of the entire crowd and you as an audience member, and you're with him in that moment. And you're thinking, okay, maybe this guy's finally getting it. And then Mitchell's there to just pull him right back to the the side of the FBI where he remains. But that's, that's not a lot of, you know, I think a trick, not even the movie that we we'd written, the early versions of the movie we'd written, were much more like these guys being friends. All through. It, was, it was Donnie Brasco. It was full on Donnie Brasco, right. you know. And we couldn't make that movie because it wasn't true, and because it would have upset a lot, a lot of. It would have upset the people who love Fred Hampton the most, you know. So we had to. It was a. It was a. It was a tough thing to navigate. It's amazing the balancing act that you pull off here because it's like, you know, I, you said exposition and I don't want to get into this, but I do want, we have a lot of um, um, student filmmakers who listen to this podcast. What you said about exposition and what you just said about um, O'Neill, if you, students, if you go back and just look at what, how you worked the Alex Rackley, New Haven, Bobby Seal, and what you just described in that arc, which is an incredibly hard piece of exposition <laughs> to build into a story like this, because you're getting into the, you're, it, the the history of the Panthers and everything, and yet to weaponize it as part of um, Stanfield's um, arc there, it's it's remarkable. And you gave this context that you know normally in a in a, a biopic would just be painful as all hell to 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 to, to work something like that in. Because I, I feel like exposition, when it furthers the drama, is not exposition. Right. It's only exposition when it's like, hey, remember that time in eighth grade when, and it's just like, why are we talking about eighth grade, you know? Um, yeah. I think a good example of that, cause, and I fought against it because it felt like exposition mm-hmm. at first. We, you know, we knew we wanted this detail of me, um, Iberia Hampton being Emmett Till's babysitter, Fred Hampton's mother having right, right, babysat right. Emmett Till. We knew that we wanted that in there. And, you know, it was important to the studio, and I understand why now. I didn't for a while, but I definitely do now, that the audience understand or have a sense of what motivated Fred Hampton to have such a tremendous love for his people. And so we were like, well, it could have been, you know, maybe we'll say it was the you know, murder of Emmett Till and the fact that, you know, his mother babysat him. And, you know, he must, he must have been a child when he read that article and saw that photo and the impression it must have left on him. And then I remember speaking to Chairman Fred Hampton Jr. and him alluding to, you know, that that being something that did affect his father in a lot of ways, even if it wasn't the motivating factor to become a revolutionary and freedom fighter. Um, but in that scene, we give the exposition, but then we connect it to him 
be him being you know frustrated with the fact that he's going to be locked away from the people and most importantly not going to be able to be there to protect his son so it moves his character you learn something about his character too i feel like exposition is fine as long as you're moving the drama along as as long as long as you're learning something about the character when i hate it is when it's just information to give the audience context it just feels lazy and it's not dramatic it stops the drama always I don't know. I don't know if uh, genre is the word here, but you know, by doing the well, I guess it is because we taught you were mentioning you know early drafts of this being like Donnie Brasco, but there is that element of this structure also allowing you. Um, and I don't know if this is a commercial thing or you as a filmmaker, but it, it gives it this like packaging that also maybe could bring bring more. You're shaking your head, so I must be onto something. It, it, bring more people in, but then there is that element of also what's the balance there. Uh, you know, and, and, and the reverence that you're having and just listening to you clearly getting Fred Hampton right is, is a huge part here. And I'm wondering, I think maybe the easiest way to talk about this is is that first scene with Lakeith. And, and I think it's the first scene, right, where he steals the goes into the bar with the crowns and steals, um, which is an incredible scene. And, and I'm thinking about this from a filmmaking standpoint, the choices that you made and how we're going to introduce that part of it. It's beautifully filmed. It's really cool. But I mean, I also have to Thank think you. that there's a balance here of how you're going to execute something like that, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, in terms of the balance, in terms of whose story it is, the reason you saw me nodding was because I, what I picked up on immediately after the Lucas Brothers pitched me the movie was that that was the only way you'd ever get a movie about Fred Hampton made. Was if yeah. you, which is why I used to say Trojan horsing a Fred Hampton biopic in, a, in an undercover crime drama, but it, even though it wasn't a Fred Hampton biopic we were making. You know, but the only way we were going to get a movie about this man, about these ideas out into the world, was to couch it in genre, and I understood that. Um, you know, in terms of, and the tricky part was how do we make, how do we, make the genre elements, which are all really largely connected to O'Neill's storyline. How do we make those as political as the scenes with Fred and the Black Panthers? And the way to do that is to make this movie on the O'Neill side of things about the dangers of being apolitical. Because in his, that, that is po- incredibly political, you know? And so throughout the movie, that's really O'Neill's storyline. And yeah, he's in danger and he's in peril, you know, and he's charming and he's manipulative and all these things. But above, above all, he's, you're essentially like looking at a movie that is talking about socialism versus capitalism in Fred's words in a lot of, in some scenes. But throughout the fabric of the movie, you're literally looking at capitalist culture and a socialist culture on display you know brought to life through these two individuals and how they move through the world you know what i mean and 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 that was once we stumbled upon that being that being you know that 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 uh that opportunity it was like okay now we have a political justification for making the movie this way there's something there's a musical thing that happens um when he exits the that bar in that first scene that you return to i don't and i'm bad with music descriptions it's almost like this jazz um theme, yeah, theme that keeps yeah it's that like keeps coming the song's yeah. 
and you and keep it comes, using it's it. It's interpolated, yeah, yeah. It's interpolated with strings a few places too. It's really interesting how you keep coming back to it for key moments of that character's arc. And it's, it's, it's a really interesting use of music. I wonder if you could talk about that. Yeah, um, so it's kind of crazy. I heard that song, I don't know when, but I was bringing that song, The Inflated Tape, I was Simon Allen Kirk, into like pitch meetings and playing <laughs> it for the studio to the point where like Ryan was like, you really play, like, you really want to play that for the studio? It's such a, you know, it's a kind of grating piece of music. I love it, but, mm. you know, uh, it, even in test screenings, a lot of times people were initially complaining about, um, you know, how screechy the saxophone horns were. Um, and just found it like great, just, you know, the things I like about it, how I'm putting it is bothered some people. Um, and so we actually had to like add a, there's a, that song is a, it's a you know, famous song by a very famous uh, saxophone player, but we had to actually add a lower contrabass clarinet to warm it up a little bit in order for, uh, you know, everybody to be comfortable with it being in the movie. But it, it just, it was one of those things where it's just a haunting melody and, you know, we, we initially, I mean, I remember dropping it in when O'Neill steals the car, is casing the car. And it felt like a, you know, piece of noir film score. And the, you know, the shot and the composition of that scene. And, you know, we were really trying to um, sort of align the viewer with the crowns in the bar and the bartender inside the bar who believed for a bit that this, man is an FBI agent. And so that's part of the reason why we hit his face and, you know, we, but that piece of music, we dropped it in there and then we brought it back initially. The only other time we had it, we were bringing it back was when the badge is revealed later when Grell mm -hmm. gives O'Neill the badge because we wanted to connect the viewer to the first time you saw O'Neill weaponizing the badge right. and it now being weaponized against him. Um, but, Mark Isham brilliantly decided to uh, do an interpolation of the song for the credits at the end. And I remember he dropped it in or we, we dropped it in and I heard it and I said, oh my God, like this is incredible. Let's take those same strings and use those to start the movie and we'll have them bookend the film, you know? So that's what you hear that over the, the logos in the beginning. And then I was like, you know, we should look at every moment where O'Neill kind of is faced with a decision or, you know, eat, or maybe it's, you know, it's almost like it's the FBI's theme music in some ways, because mm -hmm. it's any time O'Neill, for example, when O'Neill decides to really start working for Mitchell because, you know, there's an opportunity for him to make money. The fact even that we bring those strings in when O'Neill asks, how much money do you make? Which is kind of like, you know, those strings symbolize danger. And that is the beginning of a very dangerous decision that O'Neill's making. So we, we were like, this works great here, you know? Later when Mitchell finds out from Carlisle that George Sams is working for the FBI and that the FBI is responsible for the murder of Alex Rackley 
again, it was like, let's bring that same, you know, that same interpolation back. Um, and it became, you know, a, a major theme in the film. Um, and it's so funny because it was the first piece of music I heard <laughs> in the film to start with, you know, and I yeah. never even, it wasn't even like, I, I wasn't playing it like I'm gonna put this in the movie. I was playing it like, this is what this feels like to me. Right. And so, and for it to cut, be so colored throughout the movie, it's like really cool. Yeah, it's really an effective device. Um, I wanna talk a little bit about um, a lot of the choices you made in, in, in shooting this, but I'm curious, uh, you know, Sean Bob, it's a great cinematographer. I'm wondering, cause I feel like that might be an interesting discussion here. What made you reach for him? I mean, he's obviously great, but I mean, what made you reach for him in terms of what you were trying to do with the story? Cause there's such an interesting texture and a feel to this period film that you're giving. And I feel like maybe that's wrapped up in some of the choices of who you chose to work with as well. Very oh, of course. We were incredibly fortunate because, you know, initially Bradford Young was attached to- Oh, okay. To shoot this film and then you know he had, he had a baby so we had to look for a new dp and sean you know i i had a relationship with bradford prior so i i you know i i was like okay yeah i'm working with not a, one of the greatest cinematographers in the world but also someone's my friend mm-hmm. i didn't ex- i didn't know sean about it at all so when you know we were, we were just like we're out to everybody, you know, we were just trying mm-hmm. to like find a, a, a good replacement. And when I'm trying to remember who, I think it was my agent said, yeah, Sean Bobbitt wants to reach. I was like, are you serious? <laughs> you know, like, cause I don't know him and he's amazing. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, and so he and I sat down in New York. Um, I think he was doing color correction on Widows. And um, I gave him like 200 photographs that a friend uh, had given me, a, you know, a, taken from between 1967 and 73 on the west side of Chicago. And we just sat through those and talked about them. And he told me about his history being a, a news cameraman, which really fascinated me. And obviously I'd seen his work and he's one of the best in the world. I mean, I think 12 Years a Slave is literally one of the best looking films of all time. Um, and it was just a, you know, sympathetic in terms of how we view this material and a lot of choices we wanted to make even you know even though they were very early preliminary choices and, and thoughts and ideas um and like we both don't even believe it. the same way i hate exposition is how i feel about coverage which is also how right. it feels like he doesn't even he's like don't even use the word <laughs> you know um we both had this idea of like we both believe in sort of being just the economy of camera work and the simplicity, like always, yeah. always simplicity, you know, above all, and sort of like how just the richness of, of simplicity and sometimes the saw well, how simplicity can really bring out complexity in performance. Um, and, you know, we, we both just kind of had a sense of sort of some of the movies that could form the visual language that we were coming up with for this film. And again, that news cameraman thing was big for me because when I initially you know, was writing the script with Will in my mind, those early, early, early drafts moved very much away from this, but we're Battle of Algiers. And so, you know, I, I wanted someone who, um, 
who had a strong sense, and not even strong sense, I wanted someone who prioritized reality in front of the camera. Even though this was gonna move, be a movie that wasn't a documentary, was going to be influenced by the, you know, the crime scene of the 70s, but was also gonna be contemporized visually. I wanted someone who was always gonna be prioritizing just the reality of it because we wanted the film to feel immersive. We wanted when the title card 1968 Chicago came up, we wanted you to feel like you were in 1968 until the credits were over. Yeah, so I spent a lot of by the end of the film. Yeah. He's also got a deep history with Chicago. <laughs> I remember I, 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 know, dug, I, I dug into, I dug into uh, Widows with him and McQueen and also his colorist, who I assume is the colorist on this one, Tom, right? Tom Poole. Tom Poole. Yeah. Incredible and it, it was interesting talking to them about it and that sense of, um, I bring it up because it, it's what he pulled from Chicago in terms of the color and thinking of that and, and, and the way that they developed that. Very a different thing than what you, you, you two did on this film, but it's interesting. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about maybe an approach to color in those conversations with Sean, because there is um, a sense of a, a distinct Chicago through, you know, I, I don't know if it's the, I honestly don't know if it's the street lights or it's a sense of color, but there's something here that that seems to be a big part of the texture of this film in terms of the well, color. Well, you mentioned Chicago, but you really need to thank Cleveland for that. Right, I because saw that. We did most of it on the Cleveland. We did all of it in Cleveland. <laughs> all of it was shot in Cleveland, every single last bit. And, you know, to start with, in terms of the color, the photos that I mentioned were, were our Bible. I mean, we were, once we saw them, we were like, yeah, what we're trying to do is replicate this like Kodachrome, ectochrome feel. Um, okay. And, you know, a large part of the color, I think, a lot of the credit should be assigned to Sam Lysenko, a production designer, because he got on the ground about a month and change before I even got there. And he and Bill Garvey, our locations manager, just, I mean, they, they scrubbed that city. And Sam just managed to find, you know, because it was a movie that, it's, it's supposed to feel like an epic film but we didn't have the money to shoot tons of exterior wides. So those interiors had to be dynamic. And I think one of the first interiors that kind of like floored us was the Panthers headquarters, the Panthers HQ. And it was in this building that was essentially, I mean, there were rooms in it that just weren't even safe to stand in, but they put film equipment in. It was really kind of a ramshackle place, you know? And it had this color, we start, we eventually labeled Panther Green because we, we found that it would appear in these different locations where, um, you know, our protagonists, specifically the, the Panther protagonists in the film, um, you know, where they would inhabit. And it was this color that you don't really see in spaces in, you know, 2020. It's like very mm -hmm. much a color of the era, you know? And the texture of those walls was just fantastic. And so that kind of became our canvas in a lot of ways. And, you know, we really started to lean into like these earth tones um, in terms of, you know, Sam just like kind of peppering these earth tones throughout, you know, 
that panther green and you know some of the sort of cream just the distressed textures that we were encountering and another sort of incredible source of color in this film are just the ranges of brown skin you know that was something that sean and i talked about wanting to really bring to the fore um and just you know the fact that we were using like this, this large format camera we didn't have to use a ton of lights but yet we were you know, the camera retain all this information. And so you could have, bring out the blacks of Daniel's skin, those blue blacks, yeah. they're just beautiful. I mean, Daniel's skin is just photographed so incredibly. And, you know, he could be next to Deborah and we wouldn't have to pump a lot of light on him, you know, um, who's, who has a, who's a lighter, you know, has a lighter skin tone. So these browns against these, you know, earth tones and then relying on our costume designer, Charlize Antoinette Jones, to add these splashes of color. It all just kind of formed this, this like beautiful just collage. And, and yeah, uh, it, was, it was the kind of thing that we built the plane while flying, you know? It wasn't like we came in and made hard decisions. We embraced, we embraced the, the environment and the situation around us. But Cleveland was key. You know, we, and we were shooting there just for the tax credit. It wasn't because we, you know, we wanted to shoot on the west side of Chicago. We just couldn't afford it. But we would not have been able to find these locations on the west side of Chicago because it isn't trapped in a time warp the way that the Cleveland is. Right. You know, one thing I just want to point out when you're talking about Sam is, you know, I, I read in the press notes about 90% of the film was filmed on location. I assume it's somewhere around there. And I yeah. think that gives a certain sense of um, texture, but you know, the texture that he's, he's, I don't know if he's adding layers or pulling out of this because um, period films, especially these, you know, biopic type ones can lose a sense of texture. They can lose a sense of space. They can feel like a golden hue looking back. And, it, it, and that goes beyond location use. It has to do with like a production designer who's, who's really kind of, getting in there and and adding detail and pulling it out and, and finding the right spot because this doesn't feel it doesn't feel like a, a a Hollywood period film you know it feels like something that was made you know it feels like something that was made about 40 years ago you know it, yeah, it's, it's beautiful call. in that yeah. sense and it was yeah. beautiful in that sense um I'm curious in context of all of these all of this and I don't usually dwell on aspect ratio, but it does seem like widescreen was a huge part of how you saw this in the language. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. I don't know if that is tied to how we see these characters, the location, but it-, it That was, it feels that was like Sean, that was Sean. Sean was really, it was really, he, I mean, I think in our first conversation, he's like, I want to do it this way. He's like, I, he's like, I always shoot widescreen. And I was like, okay, great, let's do that. <laughs> and, and he was like, uh, but no, he explained to me why it made a lot of sense. I mean, you know, one, you're able to, you know, in close-ups really isolate a character. Um, and and it also, you just have these like crazy lands, you have landscapes inside, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, it, it, like I said, it was, that was all Sean's, Sean's, uh, idea and decision um and you know i initially understood it from a sort of intellectual perspective but then when i saw it framed up it all made sense because that's part i think of what gives the film the largesse that it has 
you know, especially in some of those those crowd shots you see in people's mm-hmm. church, you know, the the, the, the one of you know, the wide um, kind of profile shot of Danny, you really, really feel the space um, because of that. I got I got time for one more with you, Shaka, and um, I, let me see here. Yeah, you know, I got to ask this one, um, Dominique. Um, she's she's incredible in this film, Dominique Fishback. Um, I, I'm wondering if you talk a little bit about, uh, maybe I should have asked this before when you were talking about uh, Deborah as a character in that role. It feels to me not only is, um, it feels to me like so much of this is even um, written as if it's dependent on Dominique's reaction shots and the emotion that you get from her face. Huge moments of this movie are happening on her face reacting um, I'm wonder. I mean, she's an incredible actress, but I'm wondering also thinking about. Sounds like maybe you even knew you were writing this for her to a certain degree. And what? Oh, what I did write it for her. There. I wrote it. I wrote yeah. it for her. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I wrote it for her, Lakeith, Jesse, and, and Daniel. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, what did I see in her, or what? Yeah. Or, or I mean, she's. I. The truth of the matter is, is that I was a fan of her since Show Me a Hero. No. Um, I remember seeing that movie, and I love non-actors. And I remember mm-hmm. watching her and saying, oh, she's, she's, she's got to be a non-actor. Mm-hmm. And then I found out she wasn't, that her craft was just so strong that she's, she plays, things are that, they come off that naturalistic because of her craft. And so I knew I was, I knew I was making a movie about a real person, Deborah Johnson, now known as a cool Jerry. And I had footage of her. You know, I had photographs of this woman at the age that Dominique's playing her. And I thought so, Fred's ha- Fred Hampton's family is also present for a lot of the shooting, right? Am I wrong about that? They were, were yeah. They, his, his, yeah son, okay. his son and, and Akua came a few times, but his son was there. Okay. Sorry. That's all right. And Dominique looked like, I, I, I mean, if you like close your eyes, I, I close my eyes and picture her with that afternoon. She looked like her. But in addition to that, like I said, she just has a sort of, she feels like a real person, mm-hmm. you know, not like an actor playing a, a person. And that is my favorite kind of actor, you know? Um, and so I reached out to her early on and we essentially really shaped that character together. You know, we, we'd written her, but the, the real shaping of that character happened over the course of a year of her and I sitting down and getting together. You know, that, that poem she reads, that, that's, that came about because she was like, you know, I, I think the, po- the Panthers were poetic people, I wanna you know, write a poem. I said, okay. And I said, I thought about it and I was like, you know, we have this, there's this thing I wanna have them talk about. And I could have them talk about it in just, you know, dialogue. I was like, but it'd be kind of cool if she expresses this to him via poetry. And so I told her, I was like, I need you to write me a poem about this subject. And then I, she, you know, she wrote it out and I can't remember if she wrote it at a completely as is, or if it was a longer poem, what it was, it was a much longer poem. And I remember looking at snippets of it and saying, you know, this could apply to this scene here with Jake Winters because we hadn't initially those scenes weren't in a cut on they, they eventually became in a cut on the page but at the time I think they were written separately entirely separately and I just envisioned this 
sequence where you had her talking to Fred about this topic, you know, her bringing the child into this world that was becoming increasingly violent around them. And I was like, you know, we can kind of cross cut and some of the things she's saying can almost feel like they apply to what's happening with Jake Winters during the shootout. And once that happened, I was like, this, this has become, this went from being two potentially okay scenes, good scenes to like a very strong set piece. Uh, and it all exists because Dominique was like, I want a poem in the movie and delivered with an incredible poem. I, one little story before I let you go. I, uh, I, I guess I've been with IndieWire for about five years. Yeah, about late 2015. And uh, before that, I, was, uh, I built a lot of nonprofit filmmaking programs in Brooklyn, helped a lot of kids make shorts and stuff. And I had a, we used to bring in mentors. We used to bring in, we used to help to try and help them cast, you know. And I had this one amazing student who had this really ambitious project that we couldn't figure out how to get going. And she must have known Dominique. And Dominique showed up and suddenly it was like all about art and the, the, this character experiencing art and Dominique's in there and she's coming in and she's writing and she's suddenly getting into character. And it was like, I, I had no clue that she was gonna become this, but just the, I, I, I don't think I've ever been that impressed by someone in terms of um, a spirit, in terms of just what, what she expressed, you know, and I, I, I still remember being floored by that, you know, and I've had students go on become very successful filmmakers or actors and whatnot, but I don't think I've ever been as impressed by a young actress as much as when she came in and did that. And I, I, it's been, it's been wonderful to see her grow with the David Simon projects and now, and now this film, because it's, it's, was that remarkable. before the David, was that before Show me here. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. I didn't know. I mean, look, I had no clue. I mean, to me, she was, she was a friend of one of the filmmakers who said, you should meet my friend and bring her in. And she had had a one woman show at the time. This is probably yeah. before she met Al Alexa Fogel, who I know is, yeah. you know, was key. And, you know, she was your casting director and obviously all, does all David Simon stuff. Yeah. But I mean, yeah, it was like, I'm sure everybody saw her talent and saw where it was going, but it was just, I, I, I don't think I'd ever, experience something quite like that and just this film coming together around this spirit it was remarkable it was really is it's one of those few times where you're like okay um, yeah yeah this is a special this is a special talent yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. all right shahi congrats congrats on this film Thanks, i really guys. i i you know um it's it's awesome to see you doing this but i mean it's like these are these films are really hard you know to do and to get right and you know, you could have the structure, you could have the idea, but it becomes this execution and getting all those little things right. And it's in rewatching this film, it just keeps, I've, I've rewatched two and a half times now and it just keeps getting, I just, it's so tight the way you do this. You. It's, it's remarkable. It's remarkable. And your team Thank too, you. great stuff. Yeah, I mean, right. it's, it's definitely my team. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Chris. Uh,